Well, hey guys, it's good to see you all tonight. Uh, my name is Andrew. For those of you who I haven't met yet, um, I'm the campus minister with RUF and would love the chance to get to know you. Um, just a quick shout out to Gray Seegers in the back. Gray, would you mind waving? Uh, Gray is a pastor with Lake Forest Davidson. Uh, it's a wonderful church. They provided the, the grub for us later tonight, and some of you guys have already had it, um, but just wanted to give a, a plug for Lake Forest. Uh, they're a great church. Uh, a lot of you go there already. If you're looking for a church home, haven't landed, you, you, you could, you should, uh, check out Lake Forest. Uh, they're, they're big supporters of RUF at Davidson. Well, um, if you are, let's say, new to Christianity or, um, if you've been a Christian your whole life or even if you're not a Christian, I just want to say that RUF is here for you. Uh, we're a student organization really for anyone looking to explore the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, which says that you're never so good that you're beyond the reach or the need, rather, of God's grace. You're never so bad that you're beyond uh, the reach of God's grace. And uh, if you've been with us, you know that this semester, we're, we're kicking off this semester by tracing this theme of the image of God through the story of the Bible. So two weeks ago, we were looking at creation and we saw that God made everything good including humankind in his own image. Um, and we said that every human being has this deep longing for Eden, for the world as it should be, uh, which is a longing that really only Jesus, the Lord of creation, can ultimately fulfill. And then last week, if you were here, you remember that we talked about the fall and we saw how terrible and how tragic it was. And yet, in the utter darkness of our rebellion, we saw this bright glimmer of hope we have a God who's committed to bringing good out of evil. And so much so, he's so committed to that, that he uses the darkest day in human history, the day when human beings crucified his only son, to bring about our salvation. This week, we're actually looking at the third part of the story, redemption. And each week we've said that Christianity is this apprenticeship with Jesus towards recovering our humanity. If that's the case, then redemption is the part of that story that shows us how God once and for all recovered our humanity, namely through the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Just two quick notes before we pray and get into this story that Annalise just read for us. First, uh, the plan really is just to walk through this story of Jesus and Thomas together verse by verse, uh, and really looking at three things. The initial problem how the problem gets worse, and then the solution to the problem. And the second quick note, um, I promise that I won't go as long as I did last week. Um, for those of you who came last week, thanks for hanging in there. Um, but my, my hope from week to week is to wrap up large group by 9 o'clock. I, I really do want to respect and honor your time, and I'm, I really am sorry we went so late last week. Um, we'll definitely be done earlier uh, tonight. So before we jump into this story, uh, let me pray for us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you give us all eyes to see Jesus as our Redeemer so that we would know him and be known by him, so that we would follow him and become more like him? Lord, we ask all of this in his powerful name. Amen. So I actually want to begin 
with a confession. So I am not on Facebook. In fact, I'm not on any social media. Uh, and it's been that way since about a year after I graduated from here, from Davidson. And the reason that I got off of Facebook, I never really was on Instagram or anything else, but the reason I got off of Facebook was simply it, it had become too painful for me uh, to see pictures of my friends and also and especially of their children um, growing up right before my eyes. Except I wasn't seeing them grow up, I was seeing digital pixels of them on my computer screen, on my 13-inch you know, MacBook Air. And what Facebook was doing for me was this, it was just reminding me of this painful reality that I was no longer there with those friends, those friends from Davidson. I have one really close friend in particular who's got a whole litter of children now. Um, but then also my campus minister who had, I, I got to see his second child was a newborn when I was a freshman. I got to see him grow up to a four-year-old and, and then I moved away. And then shortly after that, he moved um, away as well. And Facebook was that reminder that I didn't get to see his kids grow up anymore. And so it was just too painful for me to not physically be present with these, the, my, the ones that I love. Um, to not be there for their birthdays, for their baptisms, for their, literally, for their first steps. Do you guys know why I'm starting with this confession? The problem that I experienced with Facebook, that reminder of not being physically present, is Thomas's problem. That's the initial problem that Thomas faces in this passage. He wasn't there. He wasn't physically present with his friends, with the other disciples, when the risen Jesus appeared to them. Look with me, if you have a Bible, look with me um, at the passage right before ours, starting in verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. I'll read it for us. But the, the passage right before us starts like this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, this being Sunday, the day that Jesus rose, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So that's how the passage before us starts. How does our passage start? Look with me at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And this is a, this is a big deal. This is an issue for Thomas. This is a problem. For Thomas. He wasn't there to see the risen Lord Jesus with his own eyes. I just want to pause and ask this question. Why did John include this, this particular story in his gospel? I mean, the other gospels don't include it. The other gospel writers don't tell this story. Why does John tell this story? And really, I think there's two reasons. First, it makes Thomas more relatable to the people that John is trying to reach those first century Jews and Greeks, those Christians and non-Christians who, like Thomas, were not there to see the risen Lord with their own eyes. And so immediately they could relate to Thomas. That's the first reason. But the second reason why I think John includes this story is so that we, you and I, might believe in Jesus and have eternal life in his name. And I don't think that's a stretch for me to say it because 
John goes on to say those exact things right after our passage. In verse 30, the one right after this passage that we're looking at tonight, John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these stories are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so really, here's what John wants us to see. Uh, He wants us to see that you and I are with Thomas in this story. We're in the same boat that Thomas was in. We haven't seen the risen Lord Jesus with our own eyes. He didn't appear to us in the flesh like he appeared to Thomas, or like he didn't appear to Thomas. We weren't there with all the other disciples to see Jesus. And so the question naturally arises in our minds, well, how, how are we supposed to believe? We're going to get there, but, but first the problem gets worse. So look, look with me at the rest of verse 25 and look how the problem gets worse. Notice Thomas's response to the disciples and to this problem of him not being there. He says at the end of verse 25, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into, into, excuse me, place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas refuses to believe. This is an adamant, a willful refusal to believe in Jesus' resurrection. And this is the verse where we get that moniker for Thomas, Doubting Thomas. But I want to ask, is that really fair and is that really accurate? I mean, for one, Thomas didn't so much as doubt as much as he refused to believe. And there's a difference there. One is a settled conviction and the other one isn't. And then secondly, put yourself in Thomas's shoes. The man that you've just spent the last three years of your life with, traveling with from city to city all across Israel, the man who was a dear friend, an older brother, a teacher, a mentor, a leader, the man that you looked up to and called a rabbi, the man that you saw do amazing things. I mean, you saw him feed 5,000 with just a few loaves and a few fish. You saw him walk on water. The man who said incredible things. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. This man has just died. And right when you were starting to wonder, could this be the one? Could he be the one to redeem Israel out of bondage to Rome? Could he be the Messiah? Could he be the Christ? And now he's dead. He's been killed by religious leaders conspiring with the Roman authorities. And he hasn't just been killed, he's been crucified, which is the most horrible, shameful death that you could imagine. Roman crosses were designed to send the message, this man is not to be followed, he's not to be emulated. And to think that you had placed your hopes in this man to save you. And so, and now, 
no less than three days after that horrible, shameful death, all your closest friends say to you, Thomas, we've seen him. We've seen Jesus. Imagine what your response would have been. I mean, would you have been satisfied? Or would you have been angry and confused and sad? When I was 12 years old, my grandpa Santos passed away. I actually have uh, his name, Santos, as my middle name. Fun fact. Um, he was the grandparent that I was closest to. Uh, the one who loved me and my siblings the best. This was my dad's dad. Uh, short, tan, fit, bald, uh, little man, very, you know, sh- small in stature. Uh, he had these deep wrinkles that were caused by smiling so much and by laughing so much. And he really did. He laughed a ton. In fact, he had really sensitive knees. So whenever we would go visit him in Orlando, my dad and I would kind of pin him to the couch and tickle his knees and he'd just start cracking up. He was something of a prankster. Like he would go up behind you and flick the back of your ears and then like turn away like he hadn't done it. Um, he was proud of us. He was proud of his grandkids. He used to call me uh, Red Snapper Fish because of how much I loved to swim in his pool down in Florida. And he was fairly young, I think still in his 60s, when he got cancer. And it really was a cruel fight. Um, and at the time, and still even today, it, 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 it felt like a bait and switch. Because he had surgery and he was recovering well. And the day that he was supposed to come home, his health went downhill fast. There were some complications from surgery. Uh, he, he had gone septic and his internal organs had started shutting down. And so I remember distinctly praying with my parents and my siblings in our basement, praying for a miracle, praying that he would recover. And I think within 12 hours, he had passed. How cruel would it have been if some of my close friends, some of my relatives, my family members, said to me three days after my grandpa passed away, Andrew, we've seen him. We got to see him. What would my response have been? Why are you messing with me? Can't you see I'm in grief? What are you trying to do? You know how confused I would have been? Like, these are close friends and family members. What reason would they have to mess with me? And yet, how impossible would it have been, how impossible is it to believe that he rose? Like Thomas, I'm certain that I would have refused to have believed them. And if I had gotten over my pain enough, I probably would have said to them, oh yeah, he's alive, well, show me. Show him to me. Right? That's a normal, believable response, a very human response. So here's my question for us. When are you most like Thomas? When are you most tempted not to doubt, but to refuse to believe in the risen Jesus? Maybe it is quite literally like Thomas after the death of a loved one, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, maybe even a parent. 
maybe when it's a friend or a family member who has walked away from the church and from Christianity entirely. Maybe it's right in the wake of some sort of rejection from a significant other or from that company or that, that job that you really wanted. Maybe it's after, right after some sort of failure, whether it's an academic failure or an athletic failure or a moral failure. When are you most likely to refuse to believe in the risen Jesus? Isn't it true that in all those moments, when we, that's when we most want to see Jesus? And yet that's when he seems most distant from us? So what do we do with that? Where do we go? What's the solution to this problem? Look with me at verse 26. It says, Eight days later, Jesus' disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. The solution to the problem is that Jesus appears to Thomas and provides for his faith. Remember back when Thomas said uh, to the disciples, do you remember what he said to the disciples when they said, We've seen Jesus. Look at 25, verse 25. Thomas said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And then what does Jesus say to Thomas in verse 27? Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus wasn't there, and yet Jesus knew what Thomas needed. And so here, all of Thomas's problems are addressed. Thomas wasn't there initially when Jesus appeared. Now Jesus comes back and Thomas is there. Thomas refused to believe without sight. Well, Jesus provided for Thomas's sight. He appeared to him. And notice Thomas's response in verse 28. He says, what, what amounts to the boldest confession of faith in the entire Bible, my Lord and my God. He calls Jesus a man, God, which if Thomas is wrong about that, would have been the most blasphemous, heretical thing that a Jew could have uttered. And yet that's exactly what Thomas says. Here's the good news of this passage. Jesus knows what each and every one of us needs to believe in him. And he is willing and able to provide for us, to provide for our faith. And so for some of you, you might hear that and think, that's it. That's the gospel. All right, we can go grab some grub and then go back to our dorms and go study for the rest of the night. Let's wrap it up. But for others of you, I'm guessing you're thinking, look, I get that, that Jesus provided for Thomas's faith, but what about me? I mean, it's great for Thomas that he got to see Jesus. I am still sitting here and I 
I don't get to see Jesus. What's up with that? And so maybe you're holding out on becoming a Christian for this very reason. Or maybe you think Christianity would be so much easier if you could just see Jesus. If he would just appear to you in the flesh. It'd be so much easier to fight off that sin or to wait on God's timing or to deal with that rejection if you could just see Jesus. And here's the thing. And this is, this is what separates Christianity from every other world religion and from every other worldview. Because every other faith, every other belief, every other system of doctrine, it all answers our problem of not seeing God and not being able to see God with some version of, well, look harder, pray more, read and meditate on the scriptures, whatever those may be, with more devotion, get more disciplined, deny yourself. Some version of look harder for him and he'll show himself to you. Christianity is the only religion, it's the only one that says the solution's not look harder. The solution is God sees you. Jesus sees you. Look at how this story, our story, ends in verse 29. Jesus said to Thomas, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Y'all, this is as close as we get to Jesus breaking the fourth wall. It's as if Jesus is, is peering through the pages of scriptures. I know, I know he's talking to Thomas, but he's, he's talking for our sake. And he's saying, I see you. I know what you're going through. I know what you need. And I will supply. Trust me. Look at me. See me seeing you. That's what Jesus says here. Once you realize this, that Jesus sees you, that he knows you, that he loves you, then and only then will you actually want to look for him. It's only when you realize that Jesus came and died and rose again for you because he loves you and because you're worth it. Only then will you be able to follow him. So I started by confessing that I've been off Facebook since my first year out of college. And that was because I couldn't bear that reminder that I wasn't with the ones I loved. It was, it was too heartbreaking. It was too isolating, too lonely. Thankfully, I was an RUF intern at the time. Plug for the RUF internship. And not only that, I had a really, I had a wonderful campus minister, a guy by the name of Will Spokes. And so one day I shared all of this with Will. It was a sunny afternoon. We were on the plaza at Duke's West Campus right outside of Joe Van Gogh, which is the coffee shop on campus. And we were having our one-on-one, and I shared all this loneliness with Will. Uh, I, I basically said, Will, and this is, how I, this is how I encapsulated it. I said, Will, I haven't had a hug in months. 
And just as an aside, like I was living in community. I had two roommates, but it's not like, you know, when you're a single guy living with two other single guys, like if you're feeling blue, <laughs> you don't like wake up in the morning and go like, hey, Robert, I just really need a hug. <laughs> and, like you and your roommate hug in the hallway outside the bathroom. Like part of me wishes that was socially acceptable, but that's just not, that just did not occur to any of us, myself uh, primarily. But I said, Will, I haven't had a hug in months. Like my folks, my family are all up in New York, like a 10 hour drive from Durham, not in a relationship with anyone. I'm not hugging my roommates. And I said, Will, it just makes me want to see Jesus with my own eyes. It makes me want to run into his arms. And it makes me want to receive a hug from him. Have you ever felt that way too? Maybe you just bombed a test. Maybe you were just broken up with. Maybe you did just fall back into that same old sin struggle. And all you want is for Jesus to hug you. What do you do with that longing? Do y'all know what Will said to me when I shared all this with him? I'm never, I'm never going to forget it. He said, Andrew, the closest that we come to Jesus' physical presence this side of heaven is at the Lord's table. And immediately it increased my hunger and thirst for communion. Because that's the closest this side of heaven we get to the physical presence of Jesus. So here's my application for tonight. Go hungry and thirsty to the Lord's table. Take your longings to see Jesus, your desire to be in his physical presence, your desire even to be hugged by him. Take all of that with you to the Lord's Supper because he promises to meet you there. And so if you're not part of a church that serves communion, let's get you plugged in. That's one of the reasons why we include the list of churches in the handout and on the PowerPoint every week. Is there something that's keeping you from taking communion? Let's talk about it. I'd, lo- I'd love to meet with you. But Jesus gave us communion so that he could meet with us there with his spiritual real presence, as John Calvin liked to say until the day that we get to be in his physical, real presence. Oh, and by the way, just to kind of tie a bow on this story, Will didn't just outsource that hug to Jesus at the Lord's table. Uh, He got up, I got up at the end of our meeting, and before God and all these witnesses on campus, (laughs) all these students that we're trying to minister to, he says, Andrew, come here. And he wrapped, wrapped his arms around me and gave me a hug. He was embodying and incarnating the love of Christ for me. So do you long to see Jesus? The solution isn't look harder. It's Jesus sees you. He's going to take care of you. He's going to provide for your faith, just like he provided for Thomas's faith, all the way until he comes back or calls you home. And so one day we will see him with our own eyes. We will see him face to face. 
we will hear him call our name with our own ears. And we will touch him with our own hands when he wraps us in the most powerful, tender hug that we've ever received. And he's going to whisper into our ear, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter into my rest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming to us, for living, dying, and rising again so that we might have life to the fullest, so that we might believe in you and spend eternity in your physical presence. Lord, we ask that you would now comfort us by your spirit, by your word, by the sacraments, that we might cling to you by faith. And Lord, when we do lose our grip on you, please remind us that you've always got your grip on us. We pray all of this in your powerful name. Amen.